Today we welcome Dr. Alonda Green, the Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at B-Lab. B-Lab is a not-for-profit organization that has a vision of an inclusive and sustainable economy. Essentially, they're working to create a shared prosperity for all, serving a global movement of people using business as a force for good. They're an organization I've looked up to and followed for many years, and I'm really excited to be welcoming Alonda here today. B-Lab really has paved the way for what anti-racism looks like amidst the civil response to the murder of George Floyd. When I saw this incredible content and action coming out of B-Lab, I knew I needed to track down the trailblazer behind this work. My search led me to Alonda. Alonda offers lived experience and insight on what it's like to support anti-racism work within your organization. And what's better is you'll be left with a realization that creating impact is accessible to you. Courage and meaningful conversations are a great place to start. And with that being said, let's welcome Dr. Alonda Green. How does the activist land the corporate dollars to make change? How does the child lead a movement? Hello Greta, anyone? And how did the millennial convince the boomer? What do these situations have in common? They had make or break moments where influence was created and light bulbs went off. I'm Rebecca Nedelik, and this is Nuance of Impact, a podcast to get lost in the stories of those making change. Together, we'll chat, learn, and ponder the nuanced make or break moments that make social impact so impactful. Good morning, Alonda. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for being here this morning. I'm so excited to be speaking with you. I'm so excited to be speaking with you too. Thanks for reaching out to me. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation and be able to drive change. So, okay, maybe that's a good place to start because <laughs> <laughs> because I think when when I reached out, I mean, we're at this like really crucial time in history. <laughs> mm. I think as I come from a community investment background, as I was sort of pondering and thinking about how companies were responding, I was speaking with a friend and she was talking about all the incredible things that B Corp was doing. Mm. And she ended up forwarding me some emails and some, some posts and was just really excited. And I read them and was just blown away and was like, I need to find the person behind this incredible work. And, and so I found you. No. <laughs> Not all the work, but one of the, of, one of the people behind all of the incredible work. <laughs> Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role. Yeah, happy. That's a fun story. Um, so I'm, I work at BLAB. I am their inaugural, I like to throw that in there, Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. I don't know how much longer I can kind of hold on to that inaugural title. It's, it'll be two years in January. Uh, I would say about three years ago now, uh, BLAB really started on their EDI journey. EDI, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And they did some internal surveys, inclusion and diversity trainings. And they started to realize that the results of that survey showed that folks of color at B-Lab were just simply not having the same opportunities, the same experiences as their non-folks of color. And um, they immediately jumped into action and they, and they took charge and uh, they have a EDI committee. They have a number of things that they, they did. And one of those things that stemmed from the EDI com committee's recommendations was to hire folks full-time to work and lead on the EDI effort. So they created three, two roles. 
One was an internal facing role, one was the external facing role, and here I am with the internal facing role. So my main goals were to create an inclusive work environment for those individuals who work at B-Lab, but I definitely have ties into the community, looking at our standards. Um, I work with other B Corps on their inclusive hiring practices. I work with B Corps on their EDI journey, crafting their own EDI surveys. It's been a really, really cool opportunity, and I'm I'm really lucky and blessed to be a part of B-Lab because I'm surrounded by not only people, but an entire network of, of organizations that are really trying to change the world for the better. And I'm lucky to be here. And so when you were saying the experience, the internal perspective, I'm always really fascinated by the moment that prompts the organization to make change. Mm. And so for instance, I've been with companies where they prompted, I don't know, um, diversity and inclusion initiatives based on either internal feedback or mm. um, my role as community investment. So I societal pressures exactly. So was that sort of was it societal pressures or like what prompted it? I I would say that it was the internal survey. I think that EDI has really been on the rise. Mm, I'd say in the last seven years, way longer than that, but really. Um, coming into the mainstream and organizations really taking active roles in equity, diversity, and inclusion. I'm in B-Lab, of course, as leaders in, in the business industry, as, as leaders in making the decisions. It's important for them to stay on top of things. And so they wanted their due diligence and find out what was really going on for their employees. So they did that inclusion survey, and that's whenever some of their assumed responses were not what the reality was for the folks that worked at B-Lab. And so they immediately jumped into action. And that's one of the main reasons why I find myself at B-Lab now. When I learned of that information, I was sold. I was like, any organization that will own some of their shortcomings and immediately make change, it just lets me know that even though you're not where, you're, where you want to be just yet, you're willing to do what's necessary to get there. And I was, I was sold at that point. Mm. I really, I resonate with that a lot because I have, I think in, I also have a, like, this is a personal thing for me as well. I have yeah. a personal pet peeve of when people don't say sorry. I'm, I'm Canadian for one thing. So we apologize all the time, but also <laughs> I, I think personally, I, when I know that I've messed up, like I'm like, okay, or if someone has a complaint or someone's struggling with something, I'm immediately, mm -hmm. thinking, okay, what part of what they're saying is true? What can I take responsibility for? And, and if I can't take responsibility for something, sure. like, cool, you know, I'll, I, we can talk about that. It's okay. Think, yeah, it's okay. And so I think when companies don't don't stand up and say sorry right away, I, I and especially in the conversation of equity, inclusion, and diversity, I really don't think any company's hands are clean. If, especially if you're an organization where you know you have a minority of BIPOC and and mm -hmm. Black, Indigenous, people of color, that is the standard, right? So nobody's right. hands are clean. What do you think the role of transparency is? Oh, listen, transparency is trust. And EDI work moves at the speed of trust. If you don't have trust, you're not getting anywhere. And so when you think about what it means to focus on equity, diversity, and inclusion, inclusion is like the, the crux of everything. You can invite me to the table. You can say all the things. You could check all the boxes. But if you don't speak to me when I'm there, I'm not actually included in the conversation. So we have to be able to listen to folk, right? Imagine trying to build a relationship with someone who doesn't listen to you. It's, it's near impossible. So if we're trying to create equitable experiences for all, we have to ask everyone 
about their experiences as they relate to our policies, our practices, our standards. How does this make you feel? What are the experiences that are happening? We need to be able to listen to what those responses are, elevate Black, Brown, Indigenous, minority voices and ostracized populations. Those are the folks, like that's the part that justice is now um, being elevated in the idea of EDI equity, diversity, and inclusion, but there is a huge intersectionality related to justice. This is just the right thing to do. And so we need to be able to have tough conversations, be self-reflective when somebody points out that you've made a mistake, and remember that intent and impact are not the same. And so there is a difference between what I meant to happen and what actually happened. And I think that individuals get very emotionally tied to the intent. I didn't mean that. That's not why I did that. That's not why I said that. And it makes it very difficult to hear contradictory opinions about your behavior if you feel like you meant well. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I really think that that's often even like, you know, EDI context, but even frankly, in just a high performing organization context, I really think that that's the defining piece between a culture of accountability versus an organization that's a bit more stagnant. I really think that's it because you're right. People are so attached to, and you know, like we're all, again, yeah. we're all guilty of it, but we become very emotional and attached to the intention mm -hmm. rather than saying like, okay, like how can I actually make this better and how can I improve? It's that, right? Yes. It's that commitment to self-improvement. Right. And that's, that's, you know, this journey that we're on for the anti-racism um, movement that we're, that we're trying to, to create within our networks are, you know, these are things that are, are, are necessary, but we need to be able to have self-reflection and that we need to be able to be critical of ourselves. If we're not going to be critical of ourselves, we certainly are going to have a little bit of, um, uh, a little bit of a sticking point whenever others are critical of us. So we need to be able to just simply own the fact that we're going to not get it right all the time. That's mm -hmm. okay, but it, we can't prevent that from allowing us to move forward. So transparency and trust really go hand in hand. You need to be able to ask the tough questions and admit whenever you mess up. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And again, when something you said to me is like, when you get invited to the table, mm -hmm. you get invited to the table, but you're not going to talk to me when I'm there. Mm -hmm. This is something that my mom and I talk about often. Yeah. As I, there's been times where I've been invited to committees and I've literally, I'm on the committee because I'm a woman of color and I'm like the only woman of color. Whenever I discuss this with my mom, she's like, yeah, so what? Be the first, you know, be the first. But it's again, on my perspective, it's more the trust of saying, yeah, but I, I know why I'm here. I know it's not, no, it's not a, a complete understanding of the importance of a diversity perspective, a diversity of backgrounds, you know, a diversity of experience. It's, you know, this is a visible minority. And so we need them. We yeah. need them at this table to check that box. Has that, have you experienced that before? And like, how do you, how do you respond to that? How do you figure that out? Well, listen, <laughs> if, if, if anybody who knows me knows that I don't have a problem being the first. <laughs> that is like a personality. Um, trait of mine. I'm like, yep, if there's an opportunity, I'm, 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 I'm happy to be the first one to take it, but I'm also happy to be the one to create the opportunity for myself or create that opportunity for others. Like I find joy in that. Um, and I really think it's like part of my life's purpose. And so I don't need to be in the forefront if that means that someone else can get something that they would not have had, whether that's an opportunity, 
and experience something that they would not have had if I can uh, catalyze something like that for someone, it, it's, uh, it, gives, it brings me joy. This actually, while you were speaking, it really drives me to this next question, which is when you look back at your career, where did your passion for equity, diversity, mm. inclusion, where did that start? Ah, that's a good question. I like that. I saw that. And I was like, ooh, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> and I probably should have put a little more thought into it. I was like, I'm going to be instant. Um, hey, Alana, we talked and you're an over-prepare. And so I said, don't over-prepare. Don't so prepare. there's no, I said, I, I sent you the question. I said, yes. barely look at these. So you're good. You're right. I followed the directions. I do follow oh. directions. Um, <laughs> where did my passion start? I just, I don't want to give like that cryptic answer. Like I've always been passionate about EDI. Um, I think that I was passionate about EDI before EDI was EDI. Mm. I'm passionate about people and mm. I'm passionate about um, the proper treatment of human beings. That's always been, I've always been there, a proponent of individuals who had their voice taken away, um, had their opportunity taken away you know, kind of belittled, pushed down, like I have an adverse reaction to, to the mistreatment of others. And so before EDI was like this thing, um, I think that that was just rooted in the proper treatment of human beings, the proper treatment of, of individuals. Um, and I don't, I think that I've always kind of been like that. I've always been someone who really was willing to kind of put myself out there if it meant helping someone else. Um, but I think it shifted into the world kind of, of, of EDI. Um, I was working at a community college. Um, I had just finished my master's degree. Um, and I was trying to decide what I wanted to do. Honestly, I was always in education. Um, I was a pre pre K I'm like, what do we call it then? I'm an early education, um, uh, educator. I worked at a preschool. I was a daycare director for a number of years. Um, and I went back to school and I always felt like education was where I was going to be. Um, and I moved into higher education because I felt like that's such a vital part in a person's life whenever you're deciding what your life's work is going to be. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to be involved in individuals' lives in that time frame. And because my master's work was rooted in early childhood education and how it affects black men mm -hmm. and how it, mm -hmm, and how it prevents them. It creates an educational gap that they never can catch up from. So that was my master's research. And so I was like, I really want to get an opportunity to um, kind of get my hands on young adults, specifically black men, young black men. Um, right around that 18, 19, going into, going into college, because I felt like at that time, I was relatively young, I was like 23, um, and I felt like there were not a lot of role models that were, all of the college professors were old white men or older white women. I had never had, I had one black college professor, um, and she taught calculus, and I ended up dropping out because I wasn't good at it. <laughs> so right there with you. Yeah, I, I personally didn't have a lot. And so I felt, oh God, I felt very, um, I felt very tied to being a role model for another young black individual who had never seen or never experienced a black professor. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So I started working at the community college as a professional tutor. And I went to my boss and sat down and, and, and was like, I don't know what I want to do. This is great. She was like, well, you're finishing school. You're graduating. Have you ever thought about teaching? You're a great tutor. You taught early childhood. Is this something that you'd be interested in? Um, and I sat down with for the dean and I sat down and I talked with him and he was like, I think you could teach this class. And he literally like gave it to me. So he was a black man. I, I, I still am, am associated with him today, to today. And so it yeah. took me kind of stepping out there as it relates to my passion to take, to take that opportunity for myself. And it opened doors for me. And I, I started teaching my first class and I was a college professor at 23 years old and the microaggressions <laughs> and the ridiculousness that I had to go through really um, continued to shape my ideas of what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. Um, and I knew that in order to create real change, um, I, I just had to do some things and I had to prepare myself and I had to set myself up for success because I knew that the change that I wanted or I sought to create um, was, was really necessary. There was gaps. Do you feel like your experience of those microaggressions informed where you wanted to go? Oh God. Um, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Experiences shape us whether conscious or unconscious. That's why we suppress thoughts. We suppress memories. We're affected by them. Sometimes we can't even process them in the moment. So we just shove them out and then we deal with them whenever we need to. I think that some of the microaggressions that I was experiencing early on in my career, I didn't understand as microaggressions. I understood as the way things were. Yeah. Right. It was the way things were. White people talk to you like this. White people follow you around the store. I mean, there's just things that happen. It just happened. And it wasn't even until I began to do more work supporting and advocating other minorities, other folks from the LGBTQIA community, other women. As I began to craft my work around supporting these folks, being there for them, listening to their stories, and then I'm like, huh, this actually isn't the way that it should be. It's the way that we're allowing it to remain. Mm. And we need to do something about it. And so I think that that's really where that, where that focus comes from. Mm. And it allowed me to start looking at experiences that I had and then being able to craft trainings off of those. I'm able to write articles, doing research, you know, oh, we need a mentorship program because these things are happening. So we need to do something to combat that. So experiences shape us. And I definitely utilize not only my microaggressions, but the microaggressions that I've seen other folks experience as mm -hmm. opportunities for, for, for learning and growth and knowledge. Yeah. Do you have any moments when you think back or that when you've been developing programs or developing trainings, like you mm -hmm. said, that really stick out to you? Which one? <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I get it. No, no. It's like funny, but like sad at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I think that one would be when I went back for my doctorate degree, like I crafted, um, it's a three-day training for microaggressions against women in leadership. So it's, it's for women, men are invited, of course, but it's, it's for women to understand and to learn how do I deal with microaggressions personally? How do I combat them? Like, what do I do when they happen to me? And what do I do or what can I do when I see them happen to other women? Yeah. And how do I perpetuate them? So I reached out to women-owned businesses and women leaders in, in, in business um, across the tri-state area and, and crafted 
don't know, it was like a 40 question survey of tell me about your experiences that you have had with microaggressions in your career. Mm. And reading those stories, like, like brought tears to my eyes, brought um, revelations, brought uh, unity uh, amongst that community. And one thing that always sticks out to me when I think about really early on in my career as a professor at that time um, was just something as simple as going to the, to the teacher's lounge, like just going to the, to the lounge to make copies. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't tell you the number of times I was questioned. I was demanded to see my, my documentation that I was a professor and that I wasn't a student. And so this is a locked environment. Anyone who's ever, you know, been in these, even in high schools, right? They're generally keypad. You have to, you know, so I was well within my right to be there. And I wouldn't have been able to access that space if I didn't have the status that I had at, that, at, the, at the institution. And these were never conversations that I had with other Black professors. Not once. Mm. It was not um, folks of color. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and it's a lot of times rooted in, in privilege and entitlement mm-hmm. and, and, and helping people understand that, you know, you have no rights to some of the things that you are used to having. And it's okay if someone doesn't give you what you want just because you want it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I think there's like, it's really that evolution, right? Like you mm-hmm. start off by you know, experiencing them on a regular basis, but just saying like, it's how it is. It's no big deal. It's how it is. It's how it is. Yeah. And, um, and some often blocking it out. And then as you know, you're prompted to either do a reflection, you're prompted to, you see something very overt and mm-hmm. then take passion in it, take, um, you know, the justice button hits, and then you start to reflect. And as you go through that reflection process, um, I think often that's, well, and I don't, maybe for you as well, but that's also where that frustration and anger spurs from because you realize how much you put up with. Oh my goodness. And you know what? We do that with so many things. We do that with our health even. We just get used to things being that way and we forget that it's not supposed to be that way. We just live into it. And that is why, honestly, white supremacy, we all perpetuate it. It's not this thing that's only for a specific group of people. We live in a society that the, that the structures were built the way that they were built. So if I live in a society where a non-POC mm-hmm. feels entitled to walk up to a POC and say, give me this, prove to me that you should be here. I live in a society where, at least at the time, things are changing, right? Things are very much changing. But 10 years ago, I felt obligated to fulfill that request. Mm-hmm. Because that is the way things are. This is the, the way the systems go. If you're mm-hmm. somewhere and if, if you're somewhere and a white person says, what are you doing? Why are you here? Just answer their questions and get out of there. Yeah. Just, just do the things and move forward. That just keep yourself out of trouble. And the way to keep yourself out of trouble is to do as they ask. I was taught this by my parents, my school, and that was the expectation. And now I think things are just definitely changing. And what kind of questions would you say are perpetuating this? I am asking why. These are the questions that I'm challenging us at E-Lab to ask ourselves, why is this a rule? Mm-hmm. Why is this here? Who did this? Because we don't. We don't ask them. We just do them because they're expected. Yeah. White, I think white supremacy is a really scary word for people. Oh, for sure. Right? Like when people 
hear white supremacy, they think white gown with the pointy hat. Like that's like, right. Mm -hmm. And then recently I came across a graphic that sort of laid it out a little bit better. And it had talked about some of the elements of white supremacy from a structural perspective. Mm -hmm. And it was things like defending the meritocracy. It was things like, what was the other one? Like rushing to have deadlines, worship of the written word. Yeah. Oh, English only initiatives. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah. And, and that's, that's what the thing is, is we have to get over number one ourselves. We're people, we make mistakes, we make bad choices. It's life. It won't ever stop. There will be another time in history where people have made poor decisions, right? So we need to own that some of these decisions have been made, but we have to get over ourselves and stop getting so defensive over the word racism and over the words white supremacy. Mm. Just because the word makes you uncomfortable doesn't make it less real. Mm-hmm. You cannot change something that you cannot address. You cannot change something that you cannot admit is happening. And I give people the example, if I was walking in the store and there was this wonderful elderly woman and I bumped into her, would I apologize to her or would I keep walking? Hmm. Most people say, I would apologize. You know, oh, sorry. Why can we do that in circumstances in which we physically, accidentally, encroach upon somebody's space but we cannot do that when we emotionally encroach upon their mental well-being and their psychological safety great question why why can't we just say we're sorry and we'll do better next time so Mm -hmm. we have to be able to say racism is real find out this information is out there racism is not simply about race right Mm -hmm. and it's, it's the overall oppression of people Webster, Webster Dictionary changed their definition just this year. Really? So, yeah, changed their definition of racism. And it's, it, it now includes that an institution that is built on racism is considered racism, which mm-hmm. means almost every single institution that was built in the United States at a minimum, in mm-hmm. addition to countless other systems that were built up in other countries, But especially as it relates to the U.S., these systems were built by racist individuals because Mm -hmm. that was the way of the world at the time the systems were created. And when you, so when we, of course, like we always, before we do these interviews, we always have conversations and we talk about sort of how we're going to go through our conversation today and your background. Something you talked about, which I so valued, was the Canadian context as well. And you used a word. And of course, my, my page looks like a crazy mind map, so I'm not going to be able to find it. But I can you said, tell you. Oh, I found it. Did you find Angel, it? Yeah. Angel contempt. Angel complex. Complex. What does that mean? So my lovely, lovely Canadian friend, angel complex relates to aspects of the U.S. that are always compared to aspects in Canada. So for example, if we're looking at racism, everything is compared to the U.S. And so compared to that, we're not that bad. We're better, you know? And so it's this complex that, it's the angel complex because compared to this country, compared to these groups of people, it's not so bad. We're angels compared to the, the, the crap that you all have going on in the U.S. Mm. What that does is it excuses the lacks of progress because it's good enough. Compared wow. to someone else, we're fine. 
Comparison is a bad idea. It's a bad idea when it comes to things like this, because what does that have to do with the people in your country right now that are oppressed, ostracized, mistreated, disrespected, impoverished? Ask them, do they think (laughs) that their country is angels compared to another country. I mean, I just think, and that is what we mean when we say, who are we asking? If we're asking each other, do you think I did a good job? And you say, Alonda, I think you did a great job. Sam, we did great. We tried our best. We read the things. Great. But if I ask someone who received, you know, was a recipient of the action, the rule, the regulation, whatever, it's different. It's a different perspective. And how can I be so sure that I did a good job and I never even asked them? I can't be a chef and cook a five-course meal and Mm -hmm. say I did great, and I never asked those who tried the food how it went. (laughs) Yeah, good point. You talked about, honestly, and you talked about, um, you talked about angel complex sort of stunting progress. Mm -hmm. I mean, as somebody working in this space, um, do you get excited about progress? I think, I think what you have to do when you think about progress, cause I think about progress in the same way that I think about success. Mm-hmm. I think that it's important for me to, before I can label something as progressive, I need to create the parameters for what progressive is hmm. because it may not feel progressive to hire uh, a minority in a role. But it is progressive if that's the first minority in that role. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's context. I feel as though a lot of the stuff that I'm fighting for, a lot of the stuff that folks like me are fighting for, a lot of the stuff is stuff that we've been saying should have already happened. The stuff should already be here. Mm-hmm. It is very easy to get discouraged. In these past three months, I've had days where I'm like, so what? Like, finally, the White House is putting out reports around how COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting poor folks and folks of color. We've been knew that that was going to happen. Nobody was listening. This isn't new information. So on one hand, it's really easy to see the progress, but be discouraged at the same time. So I try to encourage folks like me and folks in this space to remind ourselves it is okay to have more than one feeling at the same time. I can be excited and happy that we are working on board expansion and also be sad about the fact that in 2020, we still need it. Mm -hmm. But I can't let that sadness stop me from getting up the next day and doing it all over again. Well, let's just give you a little bit of acknowledgement. I mean, that's the hard work. And though it shouldn't need to be done in 2020, we are damn thankful that you're doing it. Self-care. Yeah. What does that mean for you? (laughs) (sighs) We've been talking a lot about self-care. Self-care means to me, don't second guess yourself on what it is that you think you need. Mm. It's giving yourself what you think you need. I think that we say so many times like, oh, if I could just have a day off, then that means that you need the day off. Sometimes it's like, I need to get outside, then get outside. I need to see my friend, 
then see your friend. Mm -hmm. If I've had a really tough morning with a lot of really heavy conversations, I'm emotionally spent by the afternoon. Mm -hmm. It is an, an emotional labor to hold folks just to educate. God bless teachers and educators. And you don't have to be in a classroom to be teaching and educating. And sometimes I'm just tired. Allow yourself to take a nap. Allow yourself to take a day off. And as a leader, it is important to model that that is okay. So many times I think that there are leaders who, oh God, I can't even. White supremacy, there's also like this notion of like, bigger is better. More is better. Go, 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 go. Set the goals. Don't stop. That is what success is. Remember I said, we need to define what we actually mean when we're saying success and mm. progress, right? What are we talking about? Who determined that success means working nonstop? Who did that? Yeah. That person sucks. I can't stand them. I did. I, I reposted a meme just the other day. It was about like this notion of this hustle. So, so I can't take quote for the meme itself, but it was around this idea of the hustle. So in, I think we all know what the word hustle means, but I also think in the black community, like hustle is like a different, you know, it's like you, that's at the root of why you wake up in the morning. Um, there is this mentality of like, that's what success is. You go to school, you work long hours, you show up early, you go, you stay late, you volunteer, you, you, you do all the things. Because if you want to get ahead, these are the things that you have to do to get there. Mm-hmm. If you don't do them, then you are now the opposite of that. If you don't show up early, then you are underachiever. If you don't stay late, you are lazy. There's no gray area. There's no opportunity for humanness, life, balance of work and, and love, life and laughter, right? So tell me this. Why, why did that, why was that so, like when you saw that meme and you were like, yes, like yeah. that's why? So the idea that you, that's what you have to do. And so I, because I am where I am in my life, and literally I've started feeling this way, I'll give it six months. I think I work hard, but this idea that I can't turn my mind off because of all the things that I think mean success, mm-hmm. that if I told somebody that I was going to do something, I need to give it to them before I said so, because they need to see that I'm a hard worker. But who told me to attach my identity so closely to that? And after I started questioning that about myself, I'm like, I picked it up because it was told to me, but it's actually causing me harm. Mm. I'll be a better wife, sister, friend, daughter, if I create boundaries and guardrails for myself and allow myself to be okay with doing nothing, there are days that I feel guilty if I'm relaxing. Yeah. And I think it's sad that we live in a mentality that says, if you choose to relax, you are a lazy person. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 19, I burnt out really hard because of like exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And I mean, I burnt out at 19. Also, like in my perspective, I was just embarrassed. Like I was like, I'm 19. Like I'm at the beginning of my career. And oh, I was- Oh, and then the pressure. Oh, the pressure. And I, I had done a lot for 19. You know, I was in fundraising and I was managing, um, you know, 300 events across the province. I had mm-hmm. huge donors that I was responsible Ooh. for. And, um, and then I stopped being able to perform and it, it affected my performance. Like oh. I- 
you probably weren't the best friend. You probably no. weren't the, your best self. No, I was not my best self at all. <laughs> at all. I always say like, I mean, luckily I was, I went back to school and I was like, I'm going back to school. But in reality, I mean, like I was going to therapy, like I did mm -hmm. go back to school. And I think that when you're talking also about, about the hustle and what we're taught and I, parents who are newcomers specifically, I believe they've sacrificed everything for you. Oh God. Mm -hmm. Parents have sacrificed everything for us. And we, we want to be that shining star for them. And they just want us to be happy and they want us to succeed. But I think the other side is everything that you suggested, you know, that, it, that desire to work hard, wanting to show up as someone that gets there early and, and stays late. And what I found is the, the emphasis that was put on the hustle over the quality of what you were producing. Mm. And now, and we talk about, I mean, the racial context associated with that as well is when you're working that hard are you creative? Are you innovative? No, no. <laughs> You're like roboting your way through life because it's already been set up for you. Mm -hmm. Seven till 11 o'clock at night. And then you, that's what you do. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then it automatically means this other thing. And so, no, you're not innovating. You're not trying new things. You're too scared to try new things. I can't try something new. If I try something outside of what they say that I should be doing. And as a black woman, right. It's like, if I make that choice, my, my career might not ever recover. Mm -hmm. I, I may never get this opportunity again. Yes. Right. And when we talk about the pressure, now I've been given this opportunity as a black woman, I can't mess it up. Mm -hmm. I can't, I don't never hide. How many times have you ever thought that if I mess this up, I'm going to mess it up for every black woman who ever might want this job ever again, mm -hmm. because they will compare me to them always. It, it, these are the things that go through our minds on a regular basis. And that is another reason why we carry this and we mm -hmm. show up at work on Monday morning. Hello, how are you? And how are you doing? And we have to carry this burden and that added pressure just for showing up. And then we're made to feel guilty for needing a moment. Mm. Bring that to a corporate perspective now. Yeah. How do you define what does being an anti-racist company look like? Because everyone's talking about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anti-racism is a newer kind of a concept. So many times we hear, again, that word racism, it's like, Ooh, I'm not a racist. Anti-racism is what are you doing to combat the effects what are you doing to change what's already here mm -hmm. and people have to understand that's the anti part of it and people will say well isn't just if i'm not a racist then i'm not then i'm an anti-racist no 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 what might be happening not an accusation but what might be happening is you are not uh, actively racist but you might be an active bystander. Hmm. And so when we shift the thinking to, no, maybe you're not actively being racist, but you are absolutely perpetuating and acting as a bystander. And again, I like to take race sometimes out of the equation to get people to understand how when we add race as a layer uh, or a factor of consideration, the rules instantly change. As I gave the example earlier with the, with the little woman, I guarantee a number of people I've done that exercise will imagine a little white lady. Mm -hmm. Did you? 
in your mind? I did. Be- yeah. Yes, because it is society has taught us that that is the norm. Mm-hmm. Of course, you say sorry to this little white lady. It's the kind. Mm-hmm. It's the right thing to do, right? Mm-hmm. You add race to that, it, it changes the dynamic. So if you if you take, I might not be a racist. However, I'm not doing anything about it. How can we actually expect for anything to change? Mm-hmm. You can't. And so what I'm trying to push for, and, and lots of folks that are, that are doing this type of work, is to say in, an, in a corporation who is driven by people, and these individual human beings are the ones who are making the decisions, right? They are creating the algorithms. They are um, um, analyzing the data. And so what lived-in experiences do the people driving those decisions have? What knowledge are they using to make these decisions? How can we say that racism exists in a world, but whenever you walk into work, it goes away? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. This affects the ment- mental state. There are physical health outcomes based on the mental anguish that they deal with in work on a regular basis. High blood pressure, hypertension, anxiety, Right. These things are linked. How can we say that we care about people mm-hmm. and we don't talk about race at work? How can we say that we care about everyone and that we want to build an inclusive economy and we don't include the economy? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not possible. Um, and so I think that asking ourselves the question, why do we start work at eight o'clock in the morning? Who, who picked that? Why do we always give all of our staff off for Christmas? because it is a white Christian holiday and the U.S. standard is white Christianity. Mm -hmm. Same with Canada. We cannot separate inclusion, race, white supremacy. You know, we don't drop them off on on the way into the office building (laughs) and then pick them up on the way back home, right? It it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking about meritocracy, like everybody's experiences and lived experiences are the same within your company. It's not Uh, true. It's not true. It's not true. And so even if you're thinking about HR, it's easy. It's Mm -hmm. easy to say, we had a policy. I'll take us, for example. We had a policy around, um, this is before I got here. So this is one that they they changed because of the inclusion survey. Mm -hmm. But it was around, if you need to travel, we'll pay you. Submit the receipts. Some folks don't see any crux with that, right? They don't see any tensions with that mm-hmm. mentality. Do you see a tension with that mentality? Yeah, because I, I mean, I was 19 when I started traveling for work. So, I mean, I had student loans. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, cool, oh, cool. I have no money to, I, I, my credit card limit is $500. Great. I'm <laughs> because I'm a student. My first credit card was $300. Yeah. That was the limit. My first mm-hmm. credit card had a $300 limit mm-hmm. and I maxed it out. Mm-hmm. Or I mean, like, that's the student context, right? Like, what about the single mom whose oh, kids, gosh. you know, need to do extracurricular activities? I mean, yeah. Now, Rebecca, the reason why you were so quickly able, that took three seconds, mm-hmm. is because of your lived experience. Mm-hmm. You're right. Your lived, your lived experience told you, ooh, I don't know if everyone mm-hmm. is going to be able to do that because when it was me, I wouldn't have been able to. So what that meant was anybody, not just folks of color, right? Please, there's no, 
Anybody who did not have the financial means to put up that money to travel, whether it was a flight, prepaying for the hotel, Ubers, Lyfts, that meant that you didn't get to take advantage of that opportunity, which means these are now groups of individuals within your organization who are never going to get experiences. And now what if we tie that to your um, promotion? What if we now tie that to your, what is your annual review? Or what if we tie that to your annual increase? Mm-hmm. So now simply because I did not have a situation that allowed me to have $1,500 to, to go to this conference, to learn these experiences, to volunteer. Again, tying it back to the conversation we had earlier, I'm not successful. I'm not going above and beyond. I'm not showing up. I'm not taking advantage, right? These mm-hmm. are all interconnected. Yeah. If businesses don't get it together, who will? Mm-hmm. Businesses literally drive the world. Mm-hmm. So if we can't have these conversations at business, then certainly the outcomes are going to continue to be disproportionately distributed across different populations. And that's a perfect example of a policy that people don't really think about from an equity, inclusion, diversity perspective. When you think about your work, and um, like I said, when I reached out to you, it was because. I saw, you know, like a lot of folks, I saw a lot of performative action. Um, A lot of people saying like, I commit to, you know, being an anti-racist company and then employees being like, hi there, what about me? Like that employee that left because, you know, so, so when you think about the murder of George Floyd and all that has resulted afterwards, you know, you're, you guys aren't just doing the work for B Corp and your organization. You're also doing the work for other companies. What has that what has that spurred for you and how has it expedited the work? Um, not to get too into the weeds, but our U.S. Canadian focus team was already very committed to anti-racism work because of the inclusive economy, the work that they do with the B Corps, the B Corp network, so forth and so on. So when COVID-19 hit and we started talking about the disp- disproportionate effects of, of COVID-19 for people of color, that sparked change within our organization for how we are going to support our folks of color. We, cr- we created um, uh, a Black at B-Lab Slack channel for, for Black folks to just get together. We have lunch every Monday and just talk. We bolstered our support for mental health. Um, so it, it definitely pushed the envelope for what we needed to be thinking about doing. And so we definitely moved into this reactionary period for maybe, you know, 90 days, 120 days where we're like, people need to get, you know, telling people to take the day off, you know, we're going to close for a day or so, so that people can kind of figure out what they're doing with their kids. And, um, and so we started thinking about how we can better support. And then the murders happen. Mm -hmm. And then the civil unrest. So we have offices all across the globe, but in the U.S., we have offices in New York, Philadelphia, Berwyn, PA, and California. And so now we're like, ooh, we have presence. And so we're looking at this research that um, between like a week span that was tagged George Floyd. And that tweet, it kind of is a heat map that shows all across the globe, folks were tweeting about this one thing. And it made it very clear that this is a global issue and we are a global network. We're seeing conversations that have never taken place. I saw that as a, as a window, as an opportunity for us to 
to really come together as an organization to drive this forward. But what we are really focusing even right now on is this cannot just be a really cute statement. A leader does things in which encourages for others to follow you. That is what a leader does. We're leaders and we should be doing things in ways that others can follow. We want to be able to track our journey and be very clear around what we're hoping to accomplish, but being able to acknowledge if we get them wrong, if we didn't do them right. Um, we're, we're currently having conversations about um, what the cost is going to be for us to do this right. Mm. I think pretty highly of myself, but I am by no means knowledgeable um, the global racism aspects. And I want to learn more. I want to be able to help the organizations make decisions and drive them into the direction that is going to help build an actually inclusive economy. And so we're going to be working with consultants. We are going to be bringing on firms. We are going to be working with folks and paying minority-owned firms and consultants that are from marginalized populations. Um, we're going to have different groups of people from our board to our executive leadership to our staff that are going to be needing different levels of support and education. And so we're, I'm looking at how do we kind of pull all these different aspects together to make this something that is really going to promote change down the line. So it's going to be a journey. We are really committed to this, not just being something that we talk about. The immediate jump is like crisis response, right? Like just put something out, say, yes. say, say that you're doing something and being able to dig a little bit deeper and say, you know, this is the cost of doing this right. And this is mm. why it's worth it and why it's imperative to your business. Um, I mean, that's accountability. It's, mm -hmm. it's the harder work, but I really do think that's kind of the standard right now. And yeah. I hope it remains the standard, you know, as the performance statements came out, so did employees speaking out people who have, you know, felt alienated by the brand. So have customers have also come out at the same time and called companies out. When you think about the companies who have been called out and yesterday, actually, um, my boss sent me a news article about a charity I really look up to, like an organization okay. that's innovative AF, like has done some good stuff. Yeah. And they're, you know, getting dragged across the coals for very real important reasons mm -hmm. because um, they did not, they have not provided inclusive environments. Um, they have oppressed employees in, in really terrible ways. As I look at that organization, mm -hmm. I'm deeply disappointed. And I want them to get their act together because yeah. I also believe in the work they do. Right. So when you talk about accountability and us saying like we screwed up and we messed up for me, you know, them apologizing publicly is like, what, whatever, don't care. Yeah. It's not, it's not enough. Right. The consequences that they're facing publicly are, are steep and necessary, yeah. but I'm wondering what is the importance of that happening? Yeah. This makes me think question. Do you, do you think that you hold your friends accountable? No, not always. Not always. Um, okay, this is such a good question. I think that in those instances, choosing, when you're, when you're talking about existing in the systems, mm -hmm. um, for me, it's about having experienced forming myself into this person that is accepted in different spaces mm -hmm. and then not wanting to draw light and attention to no longer belonging in that environment. Mm. And I think that's 
the grow up. Ah, <laughs> uh, understood. I understand that. Let me rephrase. Your friends, and I mean your real friends, whenever they're late and you've been waiting for them and they told you that they were not going to have you waiting for them anymore and they show up late, do you hold them accountable? Oh, yeah. I mean, in that situation, I'm the late friend, but like, yeah, totally. They hold me accountable. And, and they hold you accountable, right? <laughs> yeah. Why? Why do, you, why do you hold that friend accountable? Again, I'm like, they hold me accountable. But I'm like, the reason I feel like it does um, is because I value their friendship and I want them to feel, I want them to feel, I want to be a good friend. So like, yes. when they're like, Rebecca, get it together. I've been get waiting. together. Do you think, I'm getting a point. Do you think you hold your enemies accountable? Okay. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes, sometimes not always, right? Yeah. Why, right? The reason for that might be different. So I may not say anything at all to someone that I, that maybe even not an enemy, right? But the reason why I hold people accountable that are my friends is because I care about them. Hmm. I don't hold folks accountable for something that they never agreed to. I can't hold someone accountable for something that they don't know that they should be doing. Mm -hmm. I can't hold someone accountable for something that I don't expect anything from. Mm -hmm. So the reason why you are disappointed in this organization and some of their missteps is because you care about them. Ugh. Mm -hmm. And so we cannot say that we care, but we're afraid to hold folks accountable mm -hmm. because the harm is not only done to them, but it's done to me and it is done to the relationship between mm -hmm. me and that person. Mm -hmm. So we have to hold businesses accountable and we have to be okay with saying to them, listen, I think you're a great friend. I think you messed up and can you not do it again? And if this is actually a friend who cares about the friendship, mm -hmm. and if this is a business that cares about its constituents, that cares about its staff, that cares about its shareholders, its stakeholders, and its patrons, then it will care enough to be held accountable and listen. Mm. Wow. Yes, you're right. And I think maybe that's the missing piece, right? Is the, thank you for flagging it. <laughs> Right? Like not yeah. like, and yeah. I'm sorry that you flagged it earlier and I did nothing like for this organization. I, oh the, my goodness. Part, the apology is, is too late. Right. I mean, the 30 employees that deserve the apology later earlier, um, you know, they didn't get it. So I think it's, it's too late, but the part of thank you for flagging this. Thank you mm -hmm. for raising us across the coals because it's going to make us better. And we also acknowledge that the reason we're responding in this way now is because of what's happening in society. One hundred percent. And mm -hmm. just say it. Stop it. <laughs> by, by the time we, we talk a little bit about this, well, by the time we hear this live later, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's an article coming out. Um, mm -hmm. And in that article, I discuss um, exactly what you just talked about around, mm -hmm. you know, you have to be able to hold folks accountable. You have to be able to listen to what they're saying. It is okay to say you didn't get it right. It is okay to admit that you made a mistake. It is okay to say you didn't do it. That is what builds the trust. Mm. That is what builds the trust. And you have to think about some of the best leaders that I've had, some of the best bosses, some of the best mentors are the ones who are able to admit when they did it wrong. Mm -hmm. When I think about the bosses that I, that, that I had some of the most 
um, uh, challenges with. It's the mm-hmm. ones who like made the mistakes, but blame the mistakes on other people. Yeah. Sk- skirt around them. We, that's not what happened. We didn't mean it that way. We did the best we could. We tried so hard. Excuse, right? Mm-hmm. Just say we tried. This is why we did what we did. Thank you for elevating this concern. Mm-hmm. What are we going to do about it moving forward? Mm-hmm. That's what prompts people to continue to have the conversation with you. If I go to you and I say as a friend, hey, listen, this is something that it kind of hurt me. I really want us to be able to work on this. What can we do so that next time we don't find ourselves in this position? And you're like, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. You're sensitive. I'm never coming back to you again to talk to you about something that might happen. Yeah. Canceled. You got canceled. I'm done <laughs> because yeah. I don't, this is not a safe space for me mm-hmm. and you don't want to change. Mm-hmm. Yes. We can't operate businesses like that anymore. So you need to be able to say, Hmm, we never thought about that. Mm-hmm. We didn't. Mm-hmm. We didn't have the right people in the room to think about it. We didn't ask the right people. I don't know what happened, but we didn't never, we, we never thought about that. And we thank you for elevating that now. And we thank you for shedding light on the effects that our decisions are having on, on, on others that matters to us. And therefore we're going to do something different. Mm-hmm. It's like for the people inside the company, the customers who are dragging the company over the coals, like those are, those customers are allies, right? Like those companies yeah. are holding to standard. And I think that's a really important example because we don't always understand the external face of an organization doesn't speak to the struggles that internally people have not only endured, but tried to change themselves. Yeah. Alanda, thank you so much for your time this morning. I loved speaking with you. And honestly, I feel like we could have gone on for two more hours. (laughs) I'm really excited to see your article coming out and we'll make sure that we we post it along with this podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out. This was lots of fun. Alonda Green is the Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for B-Lab. B-Lab is a not-for-profit that serves a global movement of people who are using business as a force for good. Many people know B-Lab as the organization that created the B Corp certification, a certification that's held by leaders in social purpose. Companies like Patagonia. You can catch up with Alonda Green on LinkedIn and keep tabs of what's happening at B Lab and their anti-racism work on their website. We'll post a link of the article Alonda was speaking about in the description notes of this episode. It's at this point that usually the host of the podcast says, make sure to subscribe below, but that's not really what we're about. If the content in this episode is content that you feel like would be helpful to people in your circle, people who could benefit from learning about the anti-racism work that's happening at B-Lab or the incredible opinions and perspectives of Alonda Green, please share it with them. Nuance of Impact is a creative project, and the hope is that people who need to hear these conversations get to hear them. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday.